0: Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto. Doctor D, phd hit the intro. Hold up, wait. Gotta be social, network, global, home for the local. Gotta be social, network, global, home for the local. Okay, Natalia. I'm so pumped you're here because we get to talk about your new book, which uh, I think is going to be amazing. comes out in January now, right?
1: That's right. January 6th.
0: So why did you start writing this book? What was the kind of genesis of the reason why you wanted to write this book?
1: Yeah. So the book's general idea is about the place of fitness in American life. And I wrote it because fitness has a huge place in my life. And I wanted to figure out kind of how that happened. And when I say a huge place in my life and in like American culture, I mean that in really, really good ways. Like I love nothing more than being in the gym and getting that sweat and feeling those endorphins and my gym friends, et cetera. But on the other hand, there's a lot of not so great stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. at the gym too, in terms of body image and kind of (laughs) exclusivity and all that. So I wanted to figure out like, how did we become a country that's obsessed with working out as a good thing, even though it's more complicated than that. And also where access to exercise is definitely not universal. So that kind of got me on this train.
0: Well, when I started thinking about this book, I I can't wait to read it honestly, because I've been reading a lot of fitness based -based books. My last one was Daniel Lieberman's exercise, excellent book. Dr. Lieberman totally. incredible great book. And it made me think of that with this in the historical aspect. And he talks about the biological and anthropological beginnings of exercise. I'm curious about the fitness history that you discuss related to Yeah. That.
1: I'm glad you start with that book, which I which I think is a great book as well. And so it's really interesting because when you tell someone you're writing a fitness book, like the first thing they assume that it is that it's like a how-to book, like, oh, <laughs> flat abs in seven yeah, days. Yeah, let's get and fit, like, come
0: on. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm like, well, I am an instructor, but yeah. like that's not this book. And so um, the other kind of fitness book that people presume, especially when I say I have a PhD and I'm a professor, is that I'm like a movement scientist, right? Or like an exercise physiologist. And there's a lot of great work that comes out of those fields too. But people are like, when I say I'm a historian, they're like, wait, what? Like, that's an interesting perspective from which to take up fitness. And really like, you know, my expertise is American politics and culture, American society. And so what this book does is it goes back to a time when working out was weird. I think my first section is called when sweating was strange. And if you were (laughs) someone who went to the gym, if you could find one, because there weren't that many, like people thought you were suspicious. It was a strange thing to do with your time. So it goes back to then. It starts in like 1893, actually with like the strong, men on stage who are posing with their muscles. And people are like, Ooh, let me touch that. Like who look at this freak of nature who works out all day. And it gets us um, all the way up to the pandemic and Peloton and really looking at the future.
0: Wow. I, I love that the history of um, fitness is interesting to me because I mean, you could even take it so much further back into very ancient history through and yeah. in, in, in Roman at times with that. I've, I've done some of that. It's crazy. So
1: that's actually I want to point that out so I'm a historian of like contemporary America mm-hmm. like what is contemporary it could be today it could be yeah. the last hundred years but you're right when you're thinking about things from a kind of like evolutionary perspective or even like what historians call long durée like the mm-hmm. long duration of history yeah. yeah you can go back to ancient times and look at how the body has evolved from hunting and gathering and like um, from that perspective you can go back to the Greeks as many people exactly. do and look at like the Greek gymnasiums and and the kind of notion of like mind and body connectedness that history is all super important, but you know, as a historian, we kind of have to like, pick our period and what course. we're focusing on. And what's interesting is that even though in those terms, I look at a relatively short period of time, which is like the 1890s until today, like the book's 450 pages long almost yeah, right, because there's so much and so much has changed. And so I think the benefit of having that like closer look than going back centuries and centuries, is like It's full of human stories. It's full of like the stories of people who created those studios who said, Hey, exercise is actually good for you. Cause there was a whole medical establishment being like, do not run. You're going to get a heart attack. You're going to die. Ladies, your uterus is going to fall out if you lift anything heavy for real. And so I tell all those stories in there and having that kind of closer perspective and not trying to cover 500 years or thousands of years allows me, I think, to really bring it to life.
0: Let's let's, let's have you answer a big question. We're gonna do a let's big do question, here, all right? Cause nice. this I think should be, this I think encapsulates a lot of what you're talking about, but also we're searching for the answer to this question, I think in our business is, how do you grapple with the obsession with exercise? However, with but with the low percentage of people that are actually exercising regularly, there's an obsession, but on the other side, not so much. In terms of so, it, how true. do you grapple with that?
1: Yeah. And so one of the things is when I say obsession, sure, I mean, people who are working out like crazy all the time, right. but I also mean much more relevantly to most people like the obsession with the idea we should work out, mm. but very few people like 80% of Americans exactly. don't work out. So the first thing I would say from a business perspective is that one thing I've heard again and again, in interviewing entrepreneurs and quite successful ones is something your listeners might already know, which is like, we're not competing with the other fitness device or the other studio we're competing with the couch. And so the, you know, cause there's so many more people who don't exercise at all. Like right. you don't need to capture the market share of people who are at another gym. You need to get people who don't work out at all. And so I think one thing that's important for that is really considering like, you know, the accessibility and like relatively low barrier to entry that you need to have to get people in the door, because it can be hard for folks like you and me who like really feel at home in the gym to realize, to remember how intimidating it is. Like one thing that comes across in the book, and I think it's gotten a little bit better, but that I found is like, It is so prevalent that people feel like I need to be fit to go to the gym. Like I'm embarrassed to walk in there. It's intimidating. And I think sometimes the fitness industry really perpetuates that because what are they selling? Who's on the like marquee outside? Ripped people who are young and hot and, you know, looking conventionally fit. I'm sorry if like I am not someone who's comfortable in those spaces, that's not going to get me in the door. So I think that's important and that might seem obvious, but I do think it's a little bit of a risk for some fitness businesses, because like, if you look too accessible or you look like the place where people who might not look super fit and young hang out, is that going to hurt you with other consumers? Well, I would say it's worth it. One from like an ethical perspective, but even from a business perspective, a business, yeah. All, yeah. Like, and so I think that's super important. Um, the other piece, though, I think is actually bigger than any one entrepreneur. And that's really like a policy issue. So, one of the things that I focus on a lot is this crazy paradox in America where the fitness industry has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And, grown, and now is even like reba- rebounding from the pandemic. But our investment in physical education, in public recreation, running trails, basketball courts, pools, all of that, that reflects inequality. Like, you go to an affluent neighborhood, oh, green space and parks and tennis courts and all these things. You go to some neighborhoods that are not so affluent. The reason people aren't working out isn't because they're lazy. It's because it's dangerous to go outside, you know, or the way that they, their work schedule is structured. They have to commute super far and they have a shift that's overnight and they can't bring it into their schedule. So that can seem discouraging, but I think it's actually really should be inspiring that we should be organizing to say, hey, let's invest in like really good people Let's get streetlights in the city parks. Let's, you know, advocate for jobs to make incentives for people to actually exercise and have the time to do that.
0: I mean, there's a whole bunch there to discuss that I've (laughs) discussed with a lot of people. But I want to talk about specifically when you're researching to do this book, what surprised you about the information that you found out?
1: So, so many cool surprises. But one thing that surprised me is that, you know, because it's a history book, like I focus, I spend a decent amount of time looking at the moment when like our modern industry really exploded, which was really like the eighties, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is when you start getting all these gyms and studios. And I had, I won't even tell you what I assumed, but I'll tell you what I found out. One thing that I found out in interviewing a whole bunch of people who really hit it big in that moment is that, yes, they're amazing entrepreneurs and they're creative and whatnot, and I expected that, but they pretty much all were very aware of the fact that the accident of the timing of their birth created huge opportunities for them. And what I heard again and again is, can you imagine if I'd been born 10 years earlier, I would have been a PE teacher. Mm. And that versions of that comment come up mm. again and again. To me, that's actually a really sad comment because yeah. like, <laughs> oh, it would be so great if all this talent went into physical <laughs> education. But actually, and so like, we can just put that out there for people to think about. But it is really fascinating that for a lot of people, especially women who were like jocks and like always athletic, like they really felt like their only track was to be a PE teacher, which sadly, even within the education profession, doesn't get a ton of respect, doesn't earn a lot of money. And then these same people, because they graduated from college in like 1982 or 1983, were like, Oh my god in 3 years I was like making VHS tapes and going teaching on fitness cruises and these are the folks who became like some of the biggest names that created the industry today and so I was really surprised at like the prevalence of that of that and then the other thing I was surprised about because once I heard that I'm like oh okay so you guys made the decision to go make money and you know like i you know that is understandable but it doesn't feel like this idealistic thing but one interview really opened my eyes to something which is you'll have to read the book and see who it is but um one guy who's still around and very famous in the fitness industry today told me um you know the reason he was a pe teacher and a coach and he left to go work in the private industry and he's like you know why i did that because In PE, I saw that the kids who were already athletic were the ones who were playing. The kids who needed it most and could benefit most were making up excuses and sitting on the sidelines. And like the curriculum I was teaching actually wasn't motivating them or inspiring them to move and to get like this joy out of exercise. And then he said when he went to go work in the studio world, he actually found that he could create an inclusive experience in another way where women were working out, moms and dogs. And he said, like, I actually felt like I could do more good work in the industry versus in public education. That Mm. totally surprised me Mm. and really made me reflect on like, we've got to think about inclusivity in lots of different ways. Like I can glorify, Oh, if only PE was perfect, but PE has never been perfect. Like there's a reason, you know? And so that was kind of a really interesting surprise. And, um, it brought together, I'm really tracing in the book, you know, in part these two things like the rise and not exactly fall, but plateauing and a little bit of decline of enthusiasm for physical education and the rise of the fitness industry. And those stories and those interviews, I totally didn't expect. And those really, um, brought those together, I think, in a really meaningful way.
0: That is actually really interesting that it's kind of the change with that one going up, one going down. And now we stand where we're currently at this digital age of health and fitness with it. Uh, But I wonder what it says about our obsession about exercise. What does that say about us as a society? Yes.
1: Um, I think, you know, Americans are really obsessed with individualism Mm. and kind of this idea of like the self-made man or woman and fitness fits so perfectly into that. Right. Because even though I spend a lot of the book saying it's not just about individual motivation, like there is something about exercise, which like What do you need? Well, you need a lot of things, but one thing you definitely need is like individual motivation and willpower. And if you have that, the mythology goes, you can transform yourself completely and you have the visible evidence of that transformation on your body. That is very, very American. True. So is the fact that as much fun as we have at the gym, and I like to have in the gym, um, so is the fact that fitness is work. And Americans are very into the idea that like this Protestant work ethic, that like <laughs> if you work hard, it pays off. And if, if you work, like working hard is a virtue. And so I think that there's that too. And that kind of speaks to why historically um, fitness has become like, has been such an American, like people in America have become so enthusiastic about it. I'll also say that um, all of America, it's obviously not the same. There's lots of regional variation here. Yeah. But one thing that's been really interesting um, to me, like I lived in France for a while and I really, the book is about the U.S., but I try to like make nods to other countries. It's so interesting the way like the California beach body gets Mm -hmm. exported and the way that particularly like this whole like mid-century romance of California as being the place of like sunshine and health and beautiful bodies and all of that, that really gets marketed all over the world. And so you see like they're like Russian videojacks video companies that are making videos with like a set that looks like L.A. (laughs) And the idea is like, I mean, all these countries have their own fitness culture. There's something super appealing about like the American style of exercise that becomes an export.
0: (laughs) The American style of exercise. That's funny. What about you know, I thought about this association, too. And I think you may have spoken about this kind of the rise of kind of your fitness guru. In the history of fitness and wellness and almost that, that you talked about event individualism, but also in that someone who rises to an elevated experience creates a community and that could feel almost like a cult within fitness.
1: Totally. And um, so another thing that I trace in these 400 plus pages is the place of yoga in the United States Mm -hmm. as it relates to fitness culture. And, um, you know, there've there've been yoga cultures in America, like since the 19th century, for much of American history, these kind of spiritual communities were not really about physical movement and they were kind of like apart from fitness culture that starts to change in like the 60s and really changes a lot in the 1990s when you start seeing like yoga classes yoga fusion classes in like every gym right so that is relevant to your question because one thing that i found that's fascinating is that like you know fitness instructors which isn't even like a real profession until the 1980s or 1990s are like mostly considered like kind of, like, body mechanics, right? These are people who go and they tell you step touch and they say, if you want to get your biceps bigger, do this, or you know, your waist slimmer, do this, but they're not invested with very much cultural or professional respect. When you get to the 1990s and you have this fusion of yoga and fitness, that like really starts to change and you start to have fitness instructors be invested with this authority of like being a guru. Oh, this is my therapist. This is my (laughs) life coach. This is my like, you know, uh, sex icon. This is my DJ, like all of these things. And a lot of that language actually comes from yoga and you hear instructors change the way they talk. It's not about like 50 leg lifts to thin those thighs. It's like reach in, find your deepest self. And you know, that kind of talk. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think some of that I think is great because I think fitness teaching is like really important work. And I think it's like wonderful that there's a more um, explicit language to talk about that power, but something that I've written and spoken about somewhat is that, you know, fitness profession, the, the fitness profession is still relatively unregulated. And so there are a lot of individual fitness instructors who are invested with a lot of that power, right? Like people look to them for all kinds of advice and guidance. And unlike being a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer, like there are not really professional guidelines of what you can and cannot do. And we've seen, you know, quite a few examples of like pretty crazy boundary crossing that goes on (laughs) in those environments. And so I think, you know, I'm not like taking a harsh stand on that in terms of like what I think should happen or who's at fault there, because I don't think it's always like a good guy, bad guy situation. But I think we're at a point in our culture where we, for lots of good reasons, kind of see the fitness instructor as as like a powerful figure but we don't really have like language or regulations yeah. or anything to kind of like um manage that power or know how to navigate it i guess is a better way to say it. yeah
0: i, I mean I, I what's interesting about this conversation i think will be powerful for a lot of um fitness professionals a lot of fitness professionals going to hear this is they don't often know the history of their own profession yeah. and that's what's i think is critical to is understand what you're actually in when it comes from when I mean, it's we're a very infancy based, formalized profession, really. but highly unregulated. So, through the history of what you've learned, what are some of the better things we've done through the history to increase the awareness of fitness? And maybe what are on the opposite side, what are some of the things that we haven't done well in our infancy?
1: I'll take one theme to answer both of those. And that is like the issue of expertise, right? On the one hand, like it's actually been amazing to see this profession become formed really in the last, like as a profession, like 40 to 50 years. I mean, it's really in the 1980s that you start getting these organizations like the American Council on Exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, It was called AFA. Now it uh, sorry, idea. In, it yep. used to be dance exercise, but yeah. you know all those like acronym um, associations. Those all came about in like the 1980s. To put that in perspective, like the American Medical Association, American Historical Association, those are from like the 1890s and early 1900s. Right. It's a really new profession. So a really good thing that I've seen because it's such a new profession is that. It had low barriers to entry. So, you had all kinds of like marginalized people who were able to really become pioneers in that. Like the people I interview in this book, these are women, these are queer people, these are people of color who, because what you needed was like charisma, good choreography, and like, you know, to a certain extent, like an attractive body and like some hustle. And those are the people who were really laying the foundation for this industry. And many of them did very well. That is night and day from some more established professions where, oh, you need to get in the door. Oh, you need to pay this licensing fee. Oh, you don't look the part. Oh, you need to get into the school. Right. And so that I think is really beautiful. And I try to highlight how valuable it can be to have those kind of porous boundaries because you really get incredible creativity. Now, the downside of that dynamic (laughs) is kind of what I was talking about before, which is that there's a lot of totally unregulated advice out there that existed certainly um, you know at the early days of the profession when I couldn't believe looking at some of the documents that I include in the book of like, you know, they would say like, it would be like in a magazine, like, oh, like, how do you know if this is a safe movement? And it would be like, go up and ask the instructor, is this a safe movement? Like to the consumer, like, it's not even in like, (laughs) it's not even like telling, like putting the responsibility on the instructor. So, you know, there's issues for injury, et cetera. But I think today the problem has gotten almost even worse because Mm -hmm. with social media, like Anybody who looks the part and has good lighting and is charismatic can amass an enormous following. And I think that that is problematic and almost more problematic than it used to be because the scale is so enormous, right? And I also think like, this has always been the case in fitness, but image is so important that I think there's always been this huge problem that just because you have a six pack and your biceps look amazing, people think like, oh, well, their program is right for me. And people are, feel empowered to share that. And that I think is crazy. Like every time I go Online And I see somebody who's sharing their program based on like my journey. And I'm like, great. <laughs> I'm glad that's your journey, but that's like not an MD or like, that's, i am like happy to hear your story, but that is not expertise. And so I think that that is a real problem here. So, you know, to sum that up on yeah. the one hand. So awesome that people can get into this and really make moves. And that's been one of the best things about this industry. On the other hand, oh my God, it's like the Wild West and yeah. anybody can offer advice. And that is something we need to be super careful about.
0: Let's do a hypothetical here. Let's do it. I, I just, 100 years from now, right? A historian like yourself writes about fitness in the 21st century. What do you think they're gonna write about? What will the history of the 21st century of fitness potentially be?
1: History of the future, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, historians famously hate counterfactuals and hate predicting mm-hmm. the future. And you're giving me like two of these at yep. once. Um, you know, well, I think to cheat a little bit since we're already in 2022, I think the big story of um, these, this, these 20 years that we've lived in, is the story of um digital fitness connected mm-hmm. fitness just becoming a huge part of um our fitness environment that's not going to go away that's going to get even more intense and even better i mean now like vr fitness i think is still like sort of niche but yes. i imagine that is going to get like bigger and bigger um you know it's interesting though i personally think we're going to see a continuation of in person brick and mortar fitness continuing And that's because we've even seen so far that, like, as so many other things we do go online. Being in your body with other people and in person, like it means something. It means something more than like shopping for toilet paper (laughs) or for some people even worship, quite honestly, like the gym has continued to be this kind of holdout where people feel like there's something special to show up for in person. My hunch is that as even more things in our life go virtual, there will still be Some kind of persistent in-person fitness space. My hunch is those in-person fitness experiences, though, are going to be more special. Like you're not going to do that every day because, like, you're not going to be like, oh, I go to the gym every day because you're going to have such a good tech remote setup that you could do three or four of your workouts a week at home, and it's going to be pretty good. But the day you go. Maybe you travel somewhere. Maybe the workout's an hour and a half. Maybe there's like more of like a social, deliberate social surrounding to it. Like I think it'll be more of a destination. Those are some things I would say. I would love to say that I don't know if this is going to happen, but that we will reinvest in um, public space and public fitness environments. And I do think we are at such a crisis point with health in this country and especially in the pandemic, like our institutions have been so just like (laughs) convulsed (laughs) that I think um, the positive outcome of that could be a kind of wake up call of like, hey, we've got to invest in more of these safer, um, safe, you know, and and welcoming spaces for people to exercise. So I'd like to think that that's part of our history of the future, but not making any promises, although let me make some policy and I'll help make it happen. Yeah,
0: it's good. I think it's, some, it's great to talk about the past and it's great to talk about the future. And, and yep. in, but speaking of the present, I would love your take on how the, pandemic affected the essential nature of fitness or non-essential nature as was deemed by a lot of people or organizations. Give me your take on that.
1: Oh, my. Well, you know, the pandemic dealt such a body blow to the fitness industry, of course, like the fact that all of these um, environments, all of these businesses were shut down and people couldn't, people lost their work, of course, and people couldn't attend them. I think it had so many repercussions that we're still dealing with today, both in terms of the livelihoods of business owners and employees, but also in terms of those lost communities of people who would go to these places. We are seeing a rebound of in-person fitness. So I think that that is good, but I think what's the effect of the pandemic? Well, you know, we know the bodily and mental health effects have been quite bad and that I think is absolutely connected to people having less access to exercise and to exercise community. No question about that. I do think to be slightly more optimistic that you know, for so many people, the pandemic like stripped away so many aspects of their quote unquote, normal life and forced them to really reflect on like what they want and what's important. And I think that fitness is really part of that reflection process. So it's been interesting to me that as a you know, people bought their Pelotons or their home kettlebells. Yeah. And I did all those things too, <laughs> that like some folks realized like, okay, wow, I really need to make fitness a deliberate part of my life. Cause right now my life is happening in these four walls. And if I don't like get up and move on purpose, it's not happening. And so you saw some people reconnecting in that way. Then there are other people who I've seen, like who bought the whole remote setup and they're like, oh my gosh, like the reason that I like to work out wasn't even the calorie burn. It was, yeah, sure, that, but it was seeing other people and going yeah. out. And, you know, and so I think that it's almost like when you're on like an elimination diet and then you introduce things back in and you really realize what your reaction to them is. Mm-hmm. I see that a little bit with fitness too. And I think people are kind of like recalibrating and thinking. Thinking about what's important and how they're going to act. And for some people, I do think a lot of people are going to hang on to their remote setups for a long time because it's just so convenient. People, a lot of people also made real investments in that, like more than a Peloton, outfitting rooms, home gyms, et cetera. So they have new habits and, and they've made investment in it. But I think another thing that's super important, because I'm so obsessed with like fitness and inequality, is like, my God, yet another thing that exacerbates inequality in our country. Like, let's not worry just about the closed gym. Let's worry about the closed park, about the basketball hoops that were taken down. And when people are like, oh, just work out at home, who has more space to work out at home? Like, it's just every, and those, and the communities that don't have that are already the ones that are more affected by diabetes, obesity, food insecurity, all these things. And so it's like, my God, like we had in some ways, like I I roll my eyes when people say COVID was the great equalizer. Absolutely not. It was the great unequalizer. And we see that very much in the, in terms of fitness and like the very uneven way that this like, oh, just stay home or just work out at home or, you know, um, the way that that, that the, that was experienced. And I think fitness is no exception to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, for some people it was a much easier thing to do than other people. I totally. mean, especially like work from home, there's a whole conversation related to that and, and inequality uh, for mm-hmm. that. But in many ways I talk, I'm writing an article about this it, cool. is many, in many ways it was an, another inflection point in the fitness industry because yeah. it made people, especially the consumer also realize that, Fitness is more than just maybe the physical and nutritional aspect of things. It's like, wow, sometimes you don't realize the power of something till you don't have that power anymore. you go, maybe it's good for my mental health. I didn't really associate this with my mental health. I associated this with having a nice body.
1: That's right. Those type of things. Yeah. And you realize like the nice body is nice, but so is seeing people. I mean, there's a sociological concept called the third place. Are you familiar with I that am, term? Am, yeah. yeah. So for if listeners, if you're not like, so the idea is like there's home and there's work and then there are third places and it's not like being out in the street. They are places where you have kind of happenstance interactions, where you find community, where you go by choice often and you find meaning. And I think the gym is absolutely that kind of third place. Like if you think about it, you go there. And sure, maybe you like deliberately meet a friend to work out or you have the same people you train with or every time. But when I think at the height of the pandemic, when I was thinking about what I missed about exercise, I mean, honestly, some of it was like that chat in the three minutes before class starts or like the person in the locker room who you're, you know, that sounds sleazy, but like uh, the person <laughs> in the locker room.
0: Hey, let's not get creepy here. Italian, <laughs>
1: right? Who you're chatting with you know, cause you just happen to be like at the mirror at the same time or whatever. And like all of that kind of like casual interaction, it doesn't only happen at the gym, but I think exactly as you're saying, like we sometimes have such a transactional view of what exercise is for. It's like to make sure I don't get a heart attack, to burn this number of calories, to get this goal weight. But actually the pandemic, I think made so many people realize it's about so much more.
0: It is about so much more. And I think this has also given rise to kind of this social wellness club that now mm-hmm. you're seeing in places like New York City and L.A. the things, it's just like, hey, these, it's more than just exercise. It's like, hey, we're coming here to purposely be social. We're going to have uh, different uh, drips of IV of different products and things. I mean, it's a whole bunch of stuff. You know, It's kind of the whole wellness has taken over in mm-hmm. many ways. It's been good and bad. Because wellness is so vague and it's defined, you know,
1: that's absolutely. And like one of the lines in my book, I think is something like witness witness wellness is ubiquitous, but poorly defined. And we don't really know like what it means exactly. But I think, you know, this notion that mind and body are connected and that it's up to individuals to kind of take an active role in their health. And especially in preventative health, that kind of encapsulates a lot of wellness practices. And yeah, it's absolutely why you see like, oh, there's a boot camp workout. And after there's These IV drips, and there's a green juice bar right over there. And you know, and it's connected, and like there's a massage place, it's offering a discount, and like all of that is connected. The other piece of that, which I find interesting because I think it kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't sometimes too, is the connection to the beauty industry. Mm, And I always find it like fascinating. Like, you know, you'll see in the book, like that in the early 20th century, in the mid 20th century, even like in some ways, it was easy to sell fitness to women, not as sports, because like girls and ladies weren't supposed to do sports, but as another beauty product. And so you would have like essentially these things you would now look at as kind of like early fitness studios. And they were attached to beauty salons. And it was like gentle exercise. But it was like you would ha- get your nails and hair done and you do this 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 exercise. Totally different from like right. what you would consider like a CrossFit studio or a CrossFit box or, you know, anything more rigorous. Now, though, you do see, especially with some of the more women's oriented fitness studios, it's like, workout and blowout bar or yeah. like facials and I'm there's nothing wrong with that per se but I do think it's interesting to see that reconnection of the beauty and the fitness industry again and it also begs this question that you've been posing I think in a lot of your our conversation which is like why do we exercise you know and I think pairing the beauty industry and the fitness industry reminds us that for a lot of people like we still want to look pretty
0: right that is right. one there's reason there is a central tenet it. to that
1: Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think that just to go back to your first question about like, you know, what is it, how do people, how do you, how is a fitness industry person? Do you like get people in the door to your class? I think one thing which is like kind of complicated or interesting to grapple with is that if you've made fitness your life, you probably connect to exercise as something more than about superficial appearance, right? Like you're in it for like really deeper reasons, but What's important to remember, but not totally make the center of your program is that a lot of people start working out because they want to lose 10 pounds, you know? And I think that's actually really hard in the fitness industry, because on the one hand, oh, you don't want to participate in this like gross diet industry thing of like shaming people for their weight and ugh. acting like that's the purpose of exercise. Because of course we know just exercise is not going to take off it's the a weight. Poor anyway. mechanism
0: for weight loss. Yeah, it's a, exactly.
1: Is. But that's the way this industry has sold itself for so long. And so I think that like, I really respect all the fitness industry people who are like resisting that or like, I am not gonna like promise your miracle body and, or anything <laughs> like that. On the other hand, I- can't count the number of people, including myself, who pretty much started exercising because they wanted to like lose some weight. And so I think that trajectory, if I, I came for the weight loss and stayed for the community, the strength, all of that is very, very common. And so I think it's um a real challenge for folks in the industry to figure out like, what's the right marketing blend that recognizes that weight loss is an important goal for some people, but doesn't over-determine it in a way that just perpetuates the same old terrible diet industry messages of decades and decades.
0: Oh, it's true. because most people, I've been training for 22 years and most people come because they, they want to lose weight. Yeah. And then I have to explain, them, explain to them, oh, we need to educate you about this. this is. Yeah. This is not the mechanism for you to ha- have primary weight loss for that. Right. But it's such a constant issue that people still believe that exercise is the main reason for main way to lose weight, to lose weight. Yeah. And we have to get a, we have to grapple with, with that, but also understand that people are aesthetic beings.
1: That's right. Like, I they're think they're aesthetic it's really, beings. Yeah, yeah. I think we care about how we look. We and just, like, do. no. Nobody should feel ashamed of that, you know? And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about this in like the kind of body positive um, community where, you know, it was like a huge deal to move from like basically self-hatred to body positivity. But then a lot of folks were like, well, you know, you're kind of like shaming people if they're not positive about their bodies it's really freaking hard to be positive about your body like (laughs) in this environment and so people talk now about like body neutrality Mm -hmm. which you know emphasizes like maybe trying to do the radical thing of not um, staking your whole self-worth on like what you look like. Like, it's okay to be like my body is what it is, but it's not my whole self image, but it's hard. We are aesthetic beings. We want to look good. I want to be a certain size, like, you know, and I think one kind of tip, not that you're asking me for tips, but like (laughs) one thing I have found through this research and also just being like a human working out for also like, Mm. you know, over 20 years is like, We shouldn't deny that, that appearance is important to us, but I think it's important to be self-aware about how important it really is to how you feel about yourself. And then the next Piece, which I think is so important, is we have to be so vigilant about rejecting all of the moral language around appearance and weight. Because I think, particularly for women, but for men too, like you hear this everywhere like, oh, are you eating clean? Did you sin? Is that a guilty pleasure? (laughs) And like that is so messed up. And like, I come to a point, I'm 44 years old. I have two kids. I love to work out. I love to wear pretty things, but I can like look in the mirror and be like, okay, look, I am five pounds heavier than I wanted to be. I kind of know what it takes to get rid of it. I'm either going to do it or I don't, but whether I do it or I don't doesn't mean I'm a good or a bad person. It just is another aspect of who I am. And I think being deliberate about rejecting some of that, like a lot of all of that virtue signaling around exercise is a massive step that would take us really far in the right
0: direction. Most definitely. I mean, it's, uh, it's when somebody says, you know, I'm eating clean or this is a cheat day. I once told somebody, I was like, well, what's the connotation to cheating? Like, what's the definition something you shouldn't be doing? Yeah, like, exactly. and then Who it you like blew on? their mind. <laughs> they had never thought about it that way. I'm like, you're literally telling yourself this language.
1: I know it's
0: inappropriate for you to think about it this way. It's like,
1: yeah, guilty pleasures, sinful chocolate cake, like, come on. And yeah. And that's, of course, when, you know, when you asked me why exercise is so popular in the United States, mm-hmm. like we have this like very moralizing culture, right? Like to show you are virtuous is to achieve yes. like, you know, salvation through work. And so there's something about like, I'm sweating it out on the treadmill and yeah. I'm a good person, right?
0: Yeah, and you're combating this on a, especially as a professional, you're combating this, this information all the time. People are coming to you all the time with something they read, something they heard, and often it's just wildly inaccurate. Like wildly, you're like, "Whoa, where'd you get that from?" <laughs> it's yeah. like,
1: well, that gets back to the expertise question, right? Yes. Um, And I also think it's hard to be in like the hot seat as a fitness professional, have people come at you with so many questions that like, honestly, you might know the answer to, but in order to be teaching that hit class or whatever, you don't need a degree that gives you the answers to all of these questions. Like I always find it funny. Like I have a PhD in history have a fitness certification people like come to me asking about like diet plans and like all kinds of things i'm like i'm not that kind of doctor you know um but i think there's like a thirst for good information but we don't exactly have systems set up in the fitness industry to provide that responsibly
0: last thing i think was interesting it seems like and you know i've studied the history of fitness a bit myself Mm -hmm. and and my educational travels and like you we're like the same age i have my doctorate you have your doctor there's a lot of symmetry here But Mm -hmm. it seems like in this business, it always is a pull towards the extreme in our business, kind of the late night salesperson, the influencer. Why do you feel like it's this extremism and fitness pulls at people so hard?
1: Well, there is a desire to have, you know, miracle results, right? Miracle. And there I you think, go. you know, the desire for miracle results creates a market opportunity to sell that and to fill that need, even if you can't actually fill that need, <laughs> but to make these like over the top promises. One of the things I think readers will find like funny and looking back at, at my book is I go through like a bunch of fitness scams and like some of the things oh, that great. people are trying to sell <laughs> the magic weight loss couch. I mean, there was like a whole <laughs> business built Yeah. Yeah you would like lie on this couch and it would Come like on. shake you. Yeah. It was like every woman wants for Christmas, the stoppers, magic weight loss couch, things to make you grow taller. And I go through some of the legal cases around this. But yeah, there's a long tradition of people making fantastical promises because they can and because people will sign up for that. Right. So I think there's that. Then related to the extremism point, but not scams, I think it is interesting as we think about fitness inequality and we think about like the persistent and growing problem of lack of fitness in this country. On the other end, oh my gosh, we not only have people spending more and more extreme sums of money on fitness products and retreats and studios and all of these things, but you also have like Extreme fitness events and like activities that people are participating in. Like, I've run three marathons. To me, that's like a pretty badass thing to do. Yeah. Now they're like normal people like me who are doing like Ironman and Spartan yeah. races and like. <laughs> and I think it's so interesting the way the bar keeps being raised among a certain stratum of people. Right. On the other hand, most of America doesn't exercise twenty minutes a day. Right. Exactly. And there's the financial piece of that, but then there's also this weird cultural piece where there's like a constant raising of the bar of like my leggings cost $200. (laughs) My gym membership costs $400. I want to do a freaking Spartan race in like Barcelona. Like, you know, there's just this whole um, like pushing the boundaries further and further and further that's existing on one end of the spectrum. And I think perpetuating this disparity.
0: Oh my goodness. That just encapsulates all of it. It really does. Right. I mean, what a uh, that's an amazing way of looking at that. it's It's funny for me because I was a collegiate athlete, so I don't have any pull towards all these other things. I'm like, well, I already did that. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that was really hard for like four years. so <laughs> like
1: that's so interesting. So one of the other kind of big themes in here that I found so just educational to me is like looking at the difference between sports and fitness in our society and our history. And like, there's a little bit of a personal story for me there that I was never athletic. I was so intimidated by gym, by sports and PE. And then I got really into fitness. My husband was a D one scholarship athlete. Mm -hmm. And like, now he like goes to the gym to like go to the gym, but like for him, his like big thing was like, Oh my God, he was a D1 athlete, right? And it is really interesting at looking historically the way like, in many ways, our culture like enshrines sport as this amazing, wonderful thing, but is very skeptical of like non-competitive fitness <laughs> and like recreational it's activities, true. which are often more inclusive, but have a totally different cultural valence. And so the, the areas that that comes up a lot, and I, I hope people find it interesting, is um, like looking at the Presidential Council on Fitness, mm-hmm. where you you have all these boosters being like, we got to get people fit and we've got to get them to participate. And they're actually almost like anti-sports because they're like, it's actually really dangerous if you have these communities with elite sports programs, because then children have spectatoritis because they just think they should be spectators and mm. watch the really talented people. But we need programming that gets everyone playing kickball and, you know, like engaged. I thought that was really interesting. But then in order to sell that, well, that's like a weird concept to a lot of people that everyone should be exercising. They recruit all of these sports celebrities like Bud Wilkinson, who was like a celebrity football coach. And so there was this interesting push and pull between like, what is sport? What is fitness? How are they different? But how do they intersect also?
0: Yeah, that actually spectatoritis. uh, That feels like that's happening in a lot of things. I mean, it's like the that the basic society is becoming more of watching people text, watching people play video games, watching people work like everything is spectatoritis. Like,
1: yes, I mean, I agree. The exact thing that I thought of was watching people play video games. Like sometimes Right. I see my kids. And I'm like, are you watching a YouTube? Why are you watching else?
0: someone play video? Games?
1: <laughs> right. But then on the other hand, I think some people would say we're at a totally different moment where like you have creators like my 10 year old, like makes TikToks and like yeah. puts them out in the world. So I don't know. I have maybe the next book will be about like media culture but the spectatoritis thing i is was like people were really concerned about that
0: wow that's interesting natalia this (laughs) has been very enlightening thank you for giving me some of your time i know you're very busy on your media tour and everything but please let everyone know how they could connect with your book and what you're doing.
1: Yeah. So the book, first of all, thank you for having me. What a pleasure to talk Most to definitely. you. Um, my book is called Fit Nation The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, sold everywhere that um, books are sold. So you can pre order it, it'll ship in early January. And then you can find me on Instagram, Twitter. I'm Natalia Petrozella, N A T um, A L I A P E T R Z E L A. I'm not so good on LinkedIn, but you can find me on there too and also <laughs> on Facebook. So um, yeah, stay
0: in touch. Thank you so much, Natalia. I really appreciate your time and uh, we'll be in touch for sure.
1: Yes, that sounds great. Thank you.